Welcome to Deeper Levels, the podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Anurban Maitra, who is a professor of pathology and translational molecular pathology and the scientific director at the Center for Pancreatic Cancer Research at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Maitra began his medical training in New Delhi, India at the All Indian Institute of Medical Sciences and then came to the States, completing his residency in anatomic pathology and fellowships in molecular and pediatric pathology at UT Southwestern before completing his training at Johns Hopkins in GI pathology, where he stayed on as faculty and raised to the rank of full professor. I have so many things I'd like to ask Dr. Mitra today, but first, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I hope you're well as well. (laughs) Yes, I am well and socially isolated, figuring it out, you know? So today I anticipate that you and I are going to cover a wide range of topics, but listeners will know that the topic that stays on my mind is testing, not because I think it's a panacea, but because I think it is the only way we're going to learn what we need to know about the virus, who is infected, and how it's spreading. So instead of summarizing the news, I'll talk a little bit about testing today. Antibody testing is now being validated nationwide with cautions from many about the reliability of some platforms. Nonetheless, There are promising early studies which show that almost all patients form these antibodies and that the reliable tests are able to detect them. The diagnostic testing, which relies on finding viral RNA, is still hampered by nationwide shortages of reagents and things like swabs. As testing increases, I still think often about asymptomatic and presymptomatic infections, um, which in my mind seem to drive transmission. I do think that most people with fevers and people who feel sick know well enough now to stay home. But what about the roughly 20 to 30 percent of folks who never know they are infected? How are we going to find these people? Will will we be able to contact trace as a country? Are Americans willing to surrender their contact history and movements? These are the questions I think we'll all be asking for quite some time. It seems that parts of the country, including Dr. Mitra's home state of Texas, are opening back up or plan to very soon. Those of us in healthcare who are fortunate enough to have time now to take a deep breath, note with trepidation dueling impulses, the desire to keep social distancing to slow the spread of infection versus the need to relieve what we know must be a pent-up demand for routine, life-saving medical services that have been necessarily deferred. For example, how will we, quote unquote, catch up on screening mammography? What about pap smears? What is the effect on patients of having to weigh the decision themselves to interact with the healthcare system for routine care in the background of fear that said interaction could infect them with a potentially life-threatening illness for them or someone in their close circle? It is with all of this in mind that I note I could not be more thrilled to talk to today's guest. So let's start off with getting to know Dr. Mitra. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background or a lot. Um, How did you come to work where you do? I'm especially interested in how you landed on pancreatic cancer after the combination of fellowships that you have. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, So um, I did my uh, medical school in India, as as you mentioned in the introduction. Thank you for that kind introduction, by the way. (laughs) Isn't it always nice to have people talk about you for yourself? No, no, absolutely. Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes, though, it gets... Like, okay. You're like, okay. It's, it's all I'm not that great. Just it's, move on. It's okay. all downhill from here. So um, in 96, so now almost a quarter century ago, I, I, I came to Dallas, um, to University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, where I, I began my residency in pathology. 
um, did my fellowships. And then in 2001 was when I moved um, to Johns Hopkins to do my fellowship in, in GI. Now, how did I come uh, land up in pancreatic cancer and pancreatic cancer research in particular? It's an interesting story. Um, I was all set to go to the University of Chicago um, and um, after my pediatric pathology fellowship at Dallas Children's and, and, and begin a faculty position there in, in, in pediatric pathology. And uh, um, at that time, sort of in that transition, and I still hadn't fully decided, but that was the plan, um, there, was a, there was an invited lecture at UT Southwestern um, uh, called the Montgomery Lecture which is nothing to do with Elizabeth Montgomery, who is a very <laughs> famous pathologist at, at Hopkins, we all know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guest lecturer that year was a gentleman that uh, you may somewhat know uh, by the name of Ralph Ruben. And Ralph Ruben <laughs> came down and unbelievable lecture. And um, um, I'll, I'll just say it was an epiphanous moment for me when he talked about pancreatic cancer and, and how much there is to know about this disease and what an impact somebody can make. And I thought, my gosh, this is somebody I really want to work with. So I actually uh, went ahead and I I, uh, I, I I emailed Ralph and I said, would you mind if I came for a fellowship? Because I really want to work with you. And I said, sure. So instead of going to Chicago and doing pediatric pathology, um, I actually start, continued my training with Ralph uh, and, uh, and Elizabeth Montgomery and all the other uh, wonderful people at Hopkins. Um, then stayed on for a research year. I started my lab. And before you know it, it was 13 years at Hopkins. 13 and, uh, years. Yeah, wow. A long time, yeah. including including overlapping with the time you were there as a trainee. Yes. So yes. that was interesting. So anyway, yeah. so in 2013, um, I was recruited to, to be the scientific director of the uh, Pancreatic Cancer Research Center here at uh, MD Anderson. And that's yeah. when I moved to Houston, Texas. Yeah. Back to Texas. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's Although Dallas and Houston are very different. A real Texan yeah. will tell you that those two are mm-hmm. not comparable and do not even try to compare them. Would you like to clue no, in the non-Texans? I, I am not. Because I'm not sure I'll offend somebody. Okay, sure. okay, okay. <laughs> Texas is wonderful. We love all of Texas. So, okay, yes. Suffice it to know that you, that Dallas and Houston are not comparable. They're very different. They're very different okay. even though they're the same state. Okay. Um, so... Your Twitter feed was an early and reliable source of information for me regarding COVID-19. I remember um, in the times when I feel like um, because I have asthma and I was always trying to find information and just trying, and I was actually trying to decide if I should go to USCAP, ironically. And I remember reading your Twitter feed and you were retweeting information from Italy quite early. I remember one specific tweet and I don't know if it's someone you even know, but it was a research type scientist and he was closing his lab down because of the spread of COVID. And then I remember another tweet, you started tweeting out pictures of your colleagues at, at I assume MD Anderson taking mm-hmm. PPE from their labs and delivering it to the hospital. Um, so I, I wonder when is the first time you remember hearing about COVID-19 and what was the source and how did you feel? And do you think that because you you do, do come from an international background and perhaps it seems like you're more connected to the international research community maybe, do you think that maybe you saw it differently than some other physicians in the United States or even just non-physicians? Yeah, well, 
I, I won't claim any credit of, of being a soothsayer here. There were many outstanding um, epidemiologists, including at Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. um, and, and at University of Washington and other places who had this figured out long before anyone uh, in sort of a decision-making uh, power. Back to your initial question, that, that's actually an interesting um, preface. Um, so the, the, the scientist from Italy was actually Alberto Bardelli. He's a very famous cancer researcher. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he was closing down his lab, he posted this picture. And that was sort of one of the earliest times that we realized this shutdown is coming to our research right. labs. This is real. Mm-hmm. This is not just China, one country contained. This is spreading and spreading really fast. Um, but but uh, I, I would say there there are sort of a few you know defining moments in this in this uh, pandemic as it sort of came progressively westward. The first was uh, I mean officially I guess the, the the existence of of this was announced on on the last day of last year on December thirty first twenty nineteen was when mm-hmm. China said well they can kind of confirm the existence. Uh, and mm-hmm. then in early January, they reported the, the genome of, of the SARS-CoV virus. It was not called SARS-CoV-2 at that point. Uh, it was called yeah. novel coronavirus 2019. And then eventually the WHO called it SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I think in, in somewhere around, uh, I want to say, the, the third week of, uh, of January was when New England Journal published a paper from China detailing the sort of the first genome in a patient with uh, with COVID pneumonia, and then uh, mm-hmm. then um, early February was when I think scientists from China published this paper in Nature, where they uh, sequenced the genome uh, in five patients, confirmed that it was a corona, beta coronavirus, um, and it was most likely uh, related to bat coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when you realize, okay, this is a zoonotic disease that has likely spread from animals, and it is now spreading in humans. This is getting real. Um, and uh, by that time, obviously, it had already spread into European countries. Um, you had some of the earliest cases in the U.S. Um, we now know, based on some of the autopsies that, that have happened on the West Coast, that this, this was in the U.S. as early yeah. as, as February before we even knew about community spread. Well, and that, I mean, the person passed away on February 6th, I believe. Right. So right. it must have been... You know, right. they say it takes weeks to get sick. So, like you said, yeah, it was probably here. So, so I was on, yeah. I was on yeah. Twitter. I mean, it's, it's sort of, uh, I, I don't know, uh, I, I don't have the right word for it. Um, you know, uh, there's a little bit of pathos in this. Obviously, my Twitter was all about pancreatic cancer and and cancer research in general. That's what I always tweeted about. And now it's pretty much twenty four seven COVID nineteen. You know, yeah. that's all I tweet about because that's sort of the all pervasive thing that's facing us. And and some of the reason is not because I, I claim to be an expert on this necessarily or or I have deep knowledge in virology or immunology. But one thing is it, it makes me read about the subject. Mm-hmm. And and two, um, I hope at least in a very small way. And again, there are unbelievable experts that are that are really sort of, you know, doing path-breaking research and, and, and talking about their work. But in some ways, by amplifying their voice, I hope I'm contributing to some of the reliable information on this platform. Point well, you wanted to make, I, yeah. I wanted to make one more point, which is, when was the moment you realized that, um, um, you know, excuse my French, but S has hit the fan in the U.S., or it's going to hit the fan very soon? And that was on February yeah. 25th, 
when Dr. Nancy Massonier from the CDC, really? she had this, she made that phone call, that recording. Well, yeah, yeah. She had this, she had this, I guess this, this exactly this, this conference yeah. where she announced yeah. that, look, I told my kids this morning at breakfast that life, as you know, is going to change. You might mm-hmm. not have school. And she got a lot of blowback on that yes. immediately. Yeah. But I remember I was on GI pathology biopsy service that day. And I I, I came out of, I, I was listening to her because, you know, it was going on in the background. I came out and I told my colleagues, this is it. We are going to have a shutdown very soon. It's coming. That was February 25th. I will not forget that moment. Again, it's okay. kind of like, I remember it like, you know, you remember the 9-11 moment. I was at Johns Hopkins yeah. signing out with Liz Montgomery. Yes. One of the faculty came in and said, you know, a plane has gone into the World Trade Center. You never forget that moment. No. It's one yeah. of those moments I realized this is it. We are going to see change in our life okay. like yeah. not before. Yeah, I yeah. And my uh, I don't know what to call it aha moment. That sounds a little too Oprah. But the moment for me was, I was trying to decide whether or not to get on a plane to go to USCAP, which was right around the same time. And I remember knowing that that phone call was happening. And then also the first time there was a case of community spread in mm-hmm. in, Cal- in California, it was a right. woman who just presented to it sounded like a smaller hospital. Right. And she'd had no travel history and no known contacts with anyone who had travel history. And I was like, it's everywhere. It has to be. How yeah. did that person get it? And we only know about her because they tested her because someone threw a fit and it took them a week or something to even get a test. So to me, yeah, that's funny. I, I will never forget that. Right. I was texting my friends and saying, I think everyone's going to laugh me out of the world for not going to use cat this year, but I'm not going because I'm too scared I'm going to get like quarantined in a hotel or something. But um, USCAP yeah. got very lucky. The people who went to USCAP were yeah. very lucky. And I would, yeah. I would like to know, I don't think that survey has ever been done. Did anyone fall sick after they come, came back? I don't know if anyone ever did that of, survey. I haven't heard of anyone. The only thing I've heard is I have a few colleagues who... I mean, as in pathology and medicine in general, they were a little bit older. And I know that they were keeping distance from people. I don't know that they were wearing masks, that there were no shaking hands, no hugging, no, you know, but I mean, I'm sure I hope nothing bad happened, but it it did fall at a very interesting time where it was sort of starting to become something everyone was aware of. So um, this, the other question I wanted to ask you that I I haven't asked to my other um, guests is, um, I've done whole shows about consuming information in this time because I think a lot of people overconsume information, which I definitely did at the beginning. And then you're, you know, you can't sleep and you just start worrying about everything. So I wonder how do you approach information, especially since it seems like, you know, I went through your Twitter feed for the past week since I knew you and I were going to talk. And it just seems like you have such a good um, focused set of really good well-curated information. Are there certain websites you visit? Are there certain journals you read? Is it just people you follow on Twitter? How do you chop down to the to the good stuff sure. without hearing all the noise? I mean, I think, yeah. again, that answer has to be dichotomized into BC and AC, like before coronavirus and after coronavirus, <laughs> because I think, again, things have changed into even how mm-hmm. I approach um, you know, my, 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 the reason I got onto Twitter, I think it was 2008 was, uh, initially as a way of consuming information and yeah. over time that role has to sort of, uh, evolved into more of disseminating information as well. Um, and, and in the context of pancreatic cancer and, and cancer research, 
molecular biology. For me, it was a way of, of reading, reading papers and, and sort of digesting the best pieces out of it um, and getting it out there for, for people to know. And, and so obviously that meant, you know, a lot of uh, the journals that are pertinent in that area, you know, cell journals, nature, science, can ACR journals, um, uh, you know, uh, all the annals of oncology, JNCI, things that are relevant to me um, in the field of oncology, cancer research, pancreatic cancer. So I would follow that. And then, of course, you know, you, you want to follow um, uh, the some of the big meetings that are happening uh, because mm-hmm. increasingly uh, for the past few years, a lot of the breaking news in terms of, you know, trials, et cetera, um, are, are disclosed for the first time at these meetings. But of course, you know, nowadays they often have have uh, uh, sort of simultaneous publications that, that coincide with the with the disclosure of the results. But still, I mean, it's great to to sort of follow these things. So I, I, I've had I, I've had a few things that I've kind of restricted myself to in that context. It's it's all. I have to admit that that my 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 Twitter feed is very uh, I don't know should I call it boring I don't know if that's the right word I Not don't venture me. I don't venture into into things that are necessarily out of my lane. Um, uh-huh. And that may or may not be good. Uh, some people are more, uh, you know, open in terms of or more widespread in terms of the interests. But I really mm-hmm. try to stick to my lane. And and again, this is all BC. Things have changed mm-hmm. AC. This is all BC. I really try to stick to my lane because I think that, you know, one can easily make conclusions or, or say things on this platform that, uh, you know, could be erroneous and then get picked up and get amplified. And we see that right. every day, especially mm-hmm. now. So, so, um, so it's, it's been fairly, uh, you know, I'm very thematic in, in what I do. And that part of that is also what you said, which is not to get overloaded with information. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, the infodemic is, is a word that some people use for consuming too much social media information. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, um, so when when this pandemic started, I have to admit that in the beginning, I was tweeting out a lot in terms of um, even things that uh, were put on preprint servers uh, and not were not peer reviewed. I've become a mm-hmm. little bit more cautious about that because a lot of the things that are on the preprint servers, um, you know, when I remember it's so interesting. I remember when when the number of preprints um, related to COVID on on MedArchive and BioArchive crossed a thousand. I actually tweeted yeah. it out. Yay, we crossed a thousand. It's now yeah. close to three thousand in just a yeah. few weeks. So there's a lot of stuff being deposited, and you just you one you shouldn't necessarily retweet everything that's on that preprint server because it's impossible right. to to really uh, you know uh, have a rigorous uh, assessment of what's out there. Um, and but I so think I, it's probably people are so hungry for information, right? right? So it's, right. it's it's balancing that and. I don't think the general public understands exactly the need for peer just, review. Why is it necessary? They're just saying, "Oh, well, you know the answer, and you won't tell us." You know, it's like, no, well, you know, just, there's because, more to it. Yeah. Just because there is a PDF with figures and a link that you can put a hyperlink you can put that doesn't necessarily mean it has it has passed some sort of a peer review. And again, I right. want to I, I want to put the caveat: peer review is not perfect. No, no. way. <laughs> Otherwise. We would not have post peer review, you know, post publication peer review, corrections, and all of those things. So, so, but, but it's still, it, it, 
it it at least curates self curates a little bit you know yeah. think of it like a five lane highway becoming at least two lanes um you know when when you do use that and then it's not that i've stopped putting out preprints i still put out preprints like the serology preprint from stanford that came out that had so much discussion um mm-hmm. i did tweet that out um and then a lot of the subsequent discussions and then this today just today they 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 had a second version on that uh that they that they put on on uh, med archive so so I, I retweeted that and it was interesting to compare the two abstracts and how they had toned down some of their claims this is one right. of the one of the dangers uh you know necessarily of amplifying some of the preprints but but i still think there is a value in doing that especially in an age in a, in a pandemic era where where there could be valuable information there is valuable information in preprints but i have become a lot more um shall i say uh rigorous in terms of what i look at for for tweeting it out instead of just mm-hmm. you know, first i mean you know the in the beginning for example in mid january early february if there was any serology test or rt pcr or lamp or elisa i would say hey look we got this new test now I know a lot of these things are not going to pan out. It was just, you know, right. whatever, 10 samples and no one's going to. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, now you want to be a little bit more discerning. Well, did they look at clinical samples? What was the specificity of the assay? What, what, what population did they use? So, so you mm-hmm. have to be a little bit more discerning in that context. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so you have clinical and research responsibilities. Um, how has work changed for you? during this time in both of these areas? Is your lab still open? Are there still people there doing no. your research? Or? No. Yeah. So MD Anderson took a very um, strong and, and prudent position because remember, we are MD Anderson Cancer Center and probably mm-hmm. have one of the world's largest, uh, uh, you know, uh, collation of immunocompromised patients. Um, mm-hmm. And so we had to be very careful in terms of how we approach uh, this pandemic, especially given that patients who are immunocompromised are known to be at higher risk. There are now papers coming out. Um, mm-hmm. There was just one paper yesterday or this week, I think, in Cancer Discovery from China showing that cancer patients have a higher risk of complications um, when they have COVID-19. So so it's just, it's it's something that we had to be keenly aware of. So the, the priority always was um, uh, safety of the healthcare uh, uh, workers who are on campus, but also safety of our patients. And so the research labs were shut down last month. Uh, we are mm-hmm. about six weeks into this, this shutdown. Only a few very selected um, labs are open that are working on high priority COVID-19 research like therapeutics or vaccine work or developing serologies. But but all the other sort of cancer research labs right now are closed. We are slowly, very slowly inching towards um, possibly getting, you know, some people back in the next few weeks might have a shift based system. But all of that will depend on how things go in Texas. Again, we can't we we have to be very careful of not sort of opening the dam and then this this carefully uh, carefully waged sort of uh, partial uh, success that we have had in terms of making sure the curve stays flat um, and opening the dams and and then and ensuring flooding that, or, the system flooding the system yeah. basically yeah. so we have to yeah. be very careful in terms of yeah. my clinical practice um, you know I, I I sign out GI biopsies. Um, and uh, 
and obviously elective surgeries um, uh, were were uh, uh, stopped in Texas by the governor's order, and not, they are now opening up again. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, obviously, that meant that a lot of the volume that many pathologists, not just here in MD Anderson, but around the country, mm-hmm. many pathologists mm-hmm. uh, deal with, uh, went substantially down. Most of the biopsies that I received would be things like cancer diagnosis or graft versus host disease, or mm-hmm. somebody who's on immunotherapy and has you know immunotherapy associated complications. So some things that need. Um, you know, an urgent diagnosis. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But but obviously, you know, those hyperplastic polyps or screening yeah. colonoscopies, th- right. those would not show up. And I think yeah. this is the same for any field right now in pathology. Yeah. I don't, it, I, I must be enriched for GI pathologists. I've already talked to several on the podcast, one from Spain. She said the same thing. She said right. she was going to work, but she didn't have much work to do. And, uh, yeah, so I think that's a pretty common. Um, I think the same thing is happening. You know, patients are not going in for right. routine Pap smears at this time. You know, obviously. Um, so, what are you hearing from other healthcare providers in your daily practice? How are they feeling and handling it? And yeah. um, what about other people who are doing research? Right, is everyone. Yeah. So again, I'll 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 split that up into the healthcare providers yeah. and the research because I think that it's a little bit different. I mean, everyone is anxious as sort mm-hmm. of a very nebulous trait that's pervading our society at this point in time. But <laughs> but I think there are some specific differences. So I think mm-hmm. you know I, I'm in touch with my classmates uh, from med school who are all mm-hmm. over the country, including in some. Uh, very uh, sort of badly hit areas like New York mm-hmm. City or Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, their experiences um, are, are, I would say, next level. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't think, and we're very fortunate, knock on wood, may, may it always stay that way in Texas, right. that the, the big surge didn't happen so far. Um, but in places like New York City, uh, in Bronx and, and, and other places or in Detroit, uh, I have, I have friends who really seen the worst of COVID and, and dealt with hundreds of patients. Um, and they're very anxious. They're anxious. They're traumatized. They're worried about their families. Um, you mm-hmm. know, these are my classmates. So they all have children in that age group where they're sort of, you know, so young. Do, will they bring back the disease back to their families? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are concerns that they have. And, and I think um, uh, the, the, the trauma that this has inflicted on healthcare workers is going to far outlast the pandemic for a very long time. We've already seen some very unfortunate incidents with healthcare workers yeah. taking their lives out of just yes. the misery of of of, um, of you know being in that in that uh, traumatizing situation. Um, mm-hmm. Or healthcare workers who have unfortunately succumbed to this disease in places like right. China, Italy, and of course here. And mm-hmm. and so I think I think. Everyone is concerned and and they're worried and and many of them um, have, for example, moved out of their homes while they are on inpatient service, so so yeah. they stay separated from their families. So I think everyone um, who is at the front line, so to speak, not just doctors, but uh, you know nurses, respiratory therapists. Um, even uh, everyone who who cleans the hospital, I mean, they are making enormous sacrifices. And I think this is hopefully something that will be recognized um, by society at large. And then for the research colleagues, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, again, there's anxiety, but that anxiety is a little bit different. They're not encountering patients and not having to necessarily deal with you know, folks who are on a ventilator, but but um, those, especially those who are early in their careers, for them, it's concern about well, time lost, you know, the tenure mm-hmm. clock is ticking. Research grants are not uh, being worked on with, 
you know, and, and I have to say, I should phrase that with saying that in general, NIH has been wonderful. They've given a lot of flexibility with progress reports, mm-hmm. you know, um, a lot of flexibility in terms of deadlines. But still, I mean, you know, the academic world is a tough world. And, you know, there is there is this concern among early stage investigators Will they be able to make up for lost time? And then there's also this concern. Will there be a sort of a COVIDization of prioritized priorities right. at the national yeah. level, uh, you know, which probably is, is a good thing, but will it come at the cost of something else? You know, right. there's only so I much money. About, so much yeah, money I hadn't thought about part. that. Yeah. yeah. Of shifting of, of yeah, sort shift, of shifting national focus. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and actually in, in the sixty minutes that just happened this this weekend, um there was uh, I forget there was this uh, epidemiologist who talked about this panic neglect cycle where you know you have a pandemic, you panic, you throw tons of money um mm-hmm. and at this thing and at the expense of other things, and then you forget all about it when the pandemic goes away. And this actually mm-hmm. happened with SARS. I was at Hopkins right. and yeah. um, some of our colleagues who worked on HPV vaccines, all of a sudden they pivoted their labs to SARS because there was a ton of SARS money. And then in a couple of years, that money went away. And so they came uh-huh. back to HPV again. Uh-huh. And so people worry once there is an effective vaccine for, for SARS-CoV-2, is it going to be the same way and we'll just forget all about it? But in the meantime, will all sort of the national priorities pivot to SARS-CoV-2? Right. And what about those who are doing pancreatic cancer research or breast cancer research? Will it come right. at that expense? So, so th- there are worries on all fronts. There are different worries, but there are worries. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's very interesting about the shifting of focus, I'm sure. I mean, just it's like a, it's like a shiny object. You know, I'm sure people are going to yeah. do that. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's interesting. So... Um, do you think that the practice of medicine will change as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, I think it's already changed, changing mm-hmm. and changed. And the question is, is that a, just a transient um, response to the pandemic or will it stay that way? I mean, mm-hmm. things that seem very logical and you've been asking for a long time, but because of, you know, state lobbies and healthcare, you know, mm-hmm. uh, economics never happened are happening now. I mean, for example, there are now exemptions for licenses from other states. And you always wonder, why isn't there a national body for this? Why? I had a Maryland license for 13 years. And then when I moved to Texas, it took me months to get the Texas licensing done. Why was Mm -hmm. my license not recognized by some national body? So hopefully that will be one great change. If you're licensed in the United States of America, you are licensed in the United States of America. Then telemedicine, I mean, that's probably been one of the biggest changes. I mean, and not just telemedicine in inside the state. I mean, Texas, for example, had strict rules about no telemedicine outside the state. Now they've relaxed that. So somebody who's sitting in New Orleans and is in a pandemic, in, in, you know, mm-hmm. that person needs cancer care. They can have a Zoom or a DoxyMe session with their, uh, you know, oncologist here at Amy Anderson. That should be a no-brainer. And I hope that doesn't go yeah. away with the pandemic because that's a good thing. So, right. in fact, this Especially just... Especially with, yeah, with, like, with rural areas, you, you ah. hear about, you know, rural areas having 
decreased access to health care, right. like maternal mortality. Right. I'm sure cancer care is a little hard to come by when there's not a hospital within three hours of where you live. So that's an interesting thing that I hadn't One thought about my, being able to, especially I'm sure that MD Anderson has a lot of people coming in from out of town. Absolutely. Well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, one of my, one of my colleagues just, just tweeted this afternoon. It was funny. He said, you know, I haven't paper signed a form all these weeks. Why was I paper signing? Why can't we just electronically sign these orders? And, and wouldn't that be great? We I could mean, save some trees exactly. and save some physician time and healthcare worker time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe there is a silver lining to all of this tragedy that we're going through in in the context of maybe the healthcare system becoming better at the end of it, more efficient at the end of it. Yeah. And more um, sort of ripped, kicking and screaming into this decade, which we're starting with a real rush here. The other thing I've I've noticed is virtual learning for our trainees, I think is going to, I think there will always be in-person learning, but I was thinking, it's just so nice for them to be able to access lectures. You can record them. They can come back and take them when they have free time. There's no more driving across town to have a lecture, right. which I think some residents were still doing. So that's, I think the technology, in some ways, we're lucky that it's happening when there is this yeah. technology. I mean, know, I think, so, I think yeah. you know, uh, this week we had ACR. The first ACR is going to be virtual ACR in two parts. Uh, the second part is happening over summer. But the first part happened this week. And it was wonderful. There were almost 50,000 people who, who signed on online across wow. the world, and there were simultaneous sessions going on. You could listen to things happening simultaneously. You could see posters electronically whenever you wanted from the comfort of your home. I and think- was that more people than would have been there in person? Do you oh, know yeah. that? Oh, yeah. By, okay. by far. Um, by far. That's very interesting. So yeah. maybe it makes it a little bit, it sort of democratizes it, I'm sure, too, I for people so. who can't afford the plane ticket. You I know, mean, too. I think, I yeah. think there are... I do, for example, do miss the personal interaction and, you know, oh, sure. the, the high fives and standing in the coffee line. I mean, think of USCAP. I mean, I wouldn't oh, miss uh, I the personal interactions that come with it. But I think hopefully these things will become an option instead of being uh-huh. all or none. You either attend or you don't. You have right. the option of attending from home, or if you really miss the personal interaction so much, by all means, buy a plane ticket, go there and, and, and attend in person. That's a very good point. Maybe it could be a either or situation from now on. That would be nice. Um, of particular interest. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed a question about if you wanted to, you can talk about it at whatever level you want. If this situation has affected you personally, if you feel increased stressed, how do you deal with that? I mean, um, you know, obviously, uh, the, my lab is also shut down right now. And, and so there's a little bit of that concern. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be a tenured professor. And so it's a little bit different from an early stage investigator, who, as I mm-hmm. said, you know, is trying to make sure they, they, their tenure clock is, is, is intact. And so, but, but still, you know, obviously, there, there are experiments that we had planned that we had to now postpone. There were, there, we have animals in our animal facility who are being cared for, but we would love to know what's going on, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so there's that, that, that stress, but in terms of my daily routine, I mean, uh, it's interesting. Um, it hasn't really changed that much. I still have a lot of phone calls, <laughs> a lot, mm-hmm. except they're now instead of in-person meetings that become zoom or, or go to right. or WebEx. Uh, I had, I had two sets of double meetings today one on zoom one on webex so Ooh, you know so, so you're almost talked out we i am all, no 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 it's 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 but it's interesting <laughs> so so my 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 
everyday life hasn't really changed as much except for not being there in person. Okay. Uh, but, you know, obviously on a, on a personal basis, uh, you know, the kids, the schools are closed. I have a high schooler. I have a middle schooler going into high school. What's going to happen next year? Are the schools going to open in fall? My daughter's mm-hmm. going to be a rising junior. What's going to happen to all her courses or SATs? Mm-hmm. These are concerns that are, you know, my wife and I talk about all the time. I mean, it's not just work, but there's also the family part of it. And that's a real concern. So, but, but, you know, uh, on the other hand, count our blessings. We both have our jobs so far and, you know, and, you know, you, you see these pictures of, of thousands of people in the food bank line and you think, man, we are really suffering as a society. Yeah. And it's, and who knows what it's going to look like to try to get things going again. You know, you can't just, like you said, you can't just go back full throttle flood the system. So exactly. Oh, we have a lot to think about. Um, so, um, I have been thinking a lot lately about how the pandemic is affecting the shifting of resources and the treatment and diagnosis of cancer patients. My general perception from talking to colleagues kind of across the country, I know someone who works in Seattle, so, Mm -hmm. um, that she's a pathologist and that person has sort of been a, uh, on the leading edge of everything, you know, cause it sort of happened there first. And so I remember getting an email from her and she said, they're canceling elective surgeries. And I thought, okay, right. that was a long, that was a long time ago. And then she said, now they're starting to defer some breast cancer patients. So if you have a, you know, lower grade tumor, they'll put you on neoadjuvant. They'll wait to do your surgery until later. Um, and, uh, on top of that, like you said, there's studies now that said not only are they sort of deferring some patients and trying to put them off if they can, but there's also worse outcomes in cancer patients, people who have particularly hematologic uh, malignancies and those who've gotten recent chemotherapies. So I assume that you have close interactions with oncologists. I wonder what you're hearing from people who are managing these patients in a clinical setting. And then what is your perception since you're very tied into the pancreatic cancer world of how COVID is affecting and will continue to affect oncologic management? I think, I think, um, you know, again, oncologists um, and surgeons have, have, and radiation oncologists have all adapted as much as possible uh, to the situation. And uh, people are still getting to large extent the care that they need if they are coming to the hospital. The concern is patients who are not coming to the hospital because they're worried about COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But but uh, you know, oncologists um, at our place as well as other institutions um, have really embraced um, telemedicine, and so a lot mm-hmm. of patients are now getting their uh, their treatments locally, um, or uh, if they need infusion at another place, they can do that. Um, surgeries are happening. Cancer surgeries mm-hmm. are happening. I mean, as I said, you know, the, we are still getting cases of cancer surgeries here, um, as well as yeah. I assume places. pancreatic cancer isn't something you can defer, yeah. Unless, but but I with, mean, yeah, I, no, yeah. yeah. I mean, with, but with that said, uh, you know, there was there was a there was a, a recent preprint from uh, from the uh, ICR in London um, that did show that really sort of modeled uh, what would happen. Um, in different cancer types um, based on age groups, if you postpone care um, by three oh. months or six months, um, what, mm-hmm. or, uh, what would a delay of six months do in terms of survival? And obviously, in, you know, in, in a more lethal disease like pancreatic cancer, those six months could be the difference between life or death. And that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why, you know, uh, we are encouraging everyone, if you ha- are diagnosed with this, 
come in and get the treatments you need. Um, um, but but there are patients, for example, um, who are being put off if their resources are limited, especially, you know, in, in say, for example, in, in UK where the NHS might be putting some, some things off because they're early stage cancer and uh, it's considered, quote unquote, non-essential surgery or non-immediate mm-hmm. surgery. And that does have an impact. So I think I think I think um, that um, there's there's no question that we are going to see a rise in what we call all-cause mortality. It's not mm-hmm. just COVID-related deaths, but there right. will be an all-cause mortality increase. And in fact, we are seeing that already in some of the mm-hmm. numbers coming out because people with other diseases are not coming into the hospital. They're uh, too scared. They're yeah. too scared yeah. to come in or yeah. they're not getting mm-hmm. the treatment, thinking if they go, they'll die from COVID. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. instead, they are succumbing to something else. That's not necessarily cancer. It could be cardiovascular disease or right. something else. But people are not getting the care that they really should in this point. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, slowly, you know, things are opening up on, uh, in terms of even elective surgeries and all. I mean, part of it is how much longer can you put this off and you know exactly you know, and then how will you ever clear out whatever backlog, backlog there is. we created and, right or will those people and, just not seek care and we just really hope that that doing this there is no repercussions in terms of the wave the second wave or even the continuation of the first wave. I mean, I keep talking about right. the second wave, but we aren't even past the first wave yet. So I know. we're still on I the know. plateau of the first wave. We haven't started coming down yet. So we shouldn't yeah, talk exactly. about the second wave yet. Someone said that the graphs might end up looking like shark teeth. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, that kind of makes sense. You know, sort of jagged and they'll come down, they'll go back up. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I hope not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So um, you're involved with the Pancreatic Cancer Moonshot Initiative. You're the co-leader. This term moonshot, it was originally used to describe actually getting people to the moon. But I I think in recent language, it's used to describe something that it's supposedly insurmountable, but can be overcome with sort of grit and ingenuity. So um, can you tell us how the program where you are came to be? and What what are you all doing? Yeah, so so the Moonshot program um, at MD Anderson was was started by uh, Dr. Ron Dupino, who was uh, our past who's our past president, and um, uh, his idea of initiating this program was to bring together uh, investigators from across multiple disciplines, um, working for together for uh, you know uh, advances in one cancer at a time. So, uh, for example, in pancreatic cancer, we would have we have 30, 40 people, uh, scientists, uh, PIs, oncologists, uh, other disciplines who are all working together in this field. And the idea was uh, to really accelerate the pace of advances beyond just incremental uh, advances that are typically seen when you have sort of the single investigator R1 type uh, efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other paradigm was that any work that is done needs to have a clear line of sight to the clinic. You know, we're not talking here about publishing a lovely paper um, or something esoteric. What is this going to do for our patients? And so Mm -hmm. uh, when I moved here at that time, there was no pancreas moonshot. There were other moonshots, uh, lung cancer, melanoma. And then pancreas got its start a couple of years later. uh, And I'm the co-leader of that. And again, the idea here is 
what can we do that you cannot do with an NCIR01 grant, for example? Um, mm-hmm. What is it that will, we can move to the clinic at a pace that you would normally not do? And so there's a lot of that work going on. Uh, we're also working in the context of early detection, running innovative mm-hmm. trials, um, doing a lot of there's great science behind all of this. This is not empirical work. There's great science that's driving it. Both the background for doing it is based on, is rooted in great science, but also while we are doing it, we're doing science simultaneously. Um, but the idea again is, is really accelerate the pace of advances uh, faster than you would if this were uh, sort of a one-person effort. You really have teams right. working in this field. Yeah. So teams and then remove some of the pressure of, of by providing sort of a clear sight, as you said, and some yes. funding to just sort of like push everything forward. Exactly. I, I do think that's interesting as a discussion for academics and maybe for another time, but it does seem sort of like a, uh, and I don't know what percentage you would give it, but I know people who work in academics and they seem to spend a lot of time writing grants and it's like, yeah, how no. much time do you spend doing that versus doing the work that, that is your passion, obviously, and the yeah. reason you do it. Yeah. So, um, no, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. there's no question that uh, one of the reasons why, um, you know, you have uh, mechanisms like Howard Hughes and all is to free people up from writing grants right. and just think. Right. Uh, unfortunately, right. that's uh, often not the case for those who are, uh, you know, doing translational research and or right. early in their careers. And so um, efforts like the moonshot um, help free them up or let them take chances that you wouldn't probably never write in an NCI grant, for example, you know, just because you don't have the kind of preliminary data you would need. uh, Or you would write it and it would just go absolutely nowhere. Yeah, exactly. You would waste your time writing it. So so doing the kind of bold, uh, high risk work, um, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing that you have the security of having this, this money come your way, um, and then, you know, once you have, once you have some foundational basis, you can certainly go out and get money for it from right, new right. resources. That's a good point. That's a good point for everyone to know and think about. Um, so I, uh, started off the, the, the show today talking about testing, which is something that I think everyone, it's interesting to have as a laboratory scientist to have everyone coming over to talking about laboratory testing all of a sudden, even in the mainstream yeah. media. But, um, I know that the te- the landscape of testing changes frequently, but right now it's April 30th. How are you feeling about testing for COVID-19 and how do you see it changing? I mean, I know you're plugged into the Twitter sphere and the scientific literature. So what are you thinking these days? Well, I mean, I think, I think the volume of testing has certainly gone up a lot. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we were doing hundreds a day, sometimes less than when, well, when we began, the, the CDC was doing less than 100 tests a day. I mean, it's, the numbers I mean, were, looking back on that, it's just it, it's painful to read about it. Yes, yes absolutely. Sorry, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And then the whole fracas about the test not working. And we were mm-hmm. we were caught up in that because there were issues with the primers in the CDC kit. They wouldn't use the WHO test. I mean, it was just a mess. I think their control was contaminated. Yeah, oh, it was just no, no, negative no, control. The negative control was, was contaminated. The N3 yeah. primer was defective. They had three sets of primers Perfect. and the third primer right. was defective. They have now dumped that. I mean, it was just a disaster. Yeah. But okay. things have come a long way. Is it perfect? Mm-hmm. Not at all. I mean, we have a long way to go. We, we are doing 200,000 tests a day right now. We need to probably mm-hmm. be doing a couple of million at least. Um, so mm-hmm. I think I think they've come a long way. 
um, but but you know obviously for us to get back and i'm not i'm not saying this you know i'm not the one saying this this is being said by every expert who is who's out there and, and these are folks who have studied this deeply and have written mm-hmm. about this we need to ramp up not just the diagnostic testing but also the serologic testing um, mm-hmm. and yes there are there are questions about what does a serology mean does it mean you're immune how long are you immune what percentage all those questions need to be need to be addressed. But even to know are there antibodies, even that, mm-hmm. um, you know, needs to be ramped up. Um, and mm-hmm. and and you know, you might say, well, this whole concept of a of a of a corona license is is deeply misplaced. Um, and and really, there's no no basis to. Do you that. mean uh, for people who are exactly. immune? Who are immune? Yeah, I was. I, mean, I was wondering, like, what are we going to do? Like, stamp a red C on our foreheads? Exactly. Like, how are how are you going to know? Because, to me, the scariest part of being in a public place, going forward and thinking about, it, you know, just going to Target or dropping my kid off at school. Yeah. How are you going to know if the person next to you is an asymptomatic carrier? Exactly. You can't know that, you know. Yeah. And so, if someone could let you know, it's good. I'm immune. But then you say, okay, well, we don't even know what that means. Exactly. You know? So I think, <laughs> I think, I think, I think there was this, there was this misplaced optimism, almost. I should say that. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have antibodies, that's it. Uh, and you're good forever and certainly it's 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 very likely that they 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 do provide a level of immunity but we just don't know how much is how long does it last six months Mm -hmm. a year forever do you need a booster um probably do um and and so so i think i think those are all questions that need to be studied but the bottom line is if you look at the universe of testing we are nowhere near where we are there's a lot of misconceptions about and this is where i think pathologists and molecular diagnostics can play a big Mm -hmm. role in concepts in the concepts like you know what does false negative mean i mean when somebody says oh i was tested and i'm negative well do you know that the false negative is as high as 30 percent in some tests and you're talking about the pcr test for exactly the the diagnosis right and that paper you retweeted today, which I read with great interest, because this has always bothered me that the 30%, I mean, and it has to do most of the time from what I could read. And I was like going into package inserts at the beginning, <laughs> trying to figure out what what is happening. Because if you look at the original FDA approved test, they swabbed the same patient, say six times, and sometimes four of their swabs were positive or right, something right, like that. So right. I think most of that was driven by collection, right. it seems like. Right. But to me, in the paper you retweeted today about antibody testing, there was a pretty substantial number of people who came up positive for antibodies who had never tested positive right. for the diagnostic test. Right. So to me, are those false positives? Are those being counted as false positives? Or do we think those people actually had COVID-19 and we never knew it? We couldn't prove it. So to me, those are the kinds of questions that you're going to have to answer because knowing what the what what you're calling a false positive and what is someone who you're only picking up after the fact is a huge difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 this is why the 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 you know there was this proliferation of of poorly made tests that were available online. Right. I actually mm-hmm. had friends in, in New York and other places who had bought those tests online. They just ordered and said, I'm just going to test if I'm positive or not. You know, you could buy them for almost a buck a pop or something online. Oh, and I, I, I don't know what that band means. I mean, they're like pregnancy yeah. tests, but what does that band yeah. mean? I mean, it, it could be a cross-reactive coronavirus for all you know, and then you're walking around with a false sense of security. So that's so what I worries me. Yeah. so much to learn. Mm-hmm. We have so much to learn. And I think this is one place where pathologists and molecular diagnostics in particular Mm -hmm. can play such an important role in educating the public 
what these parameters mean. Yes, I totally agree. And it's, yes, I, I, I almost wish we already knew. I mean, I do definitely wish we already knew that stuff, but that would mean we'd be probably three, four months in the future. So who knows what that's going to look like, <laughs> but yeah. Right. Um, um, Although, like you, you mentioned, you alluded earlier that you and I overlapped at Hopkins. I was a trainee in GYN pathology, not GI pathology, but your trainees and I shared a very small office. So I got to know the GI attendings probably better than other subspecialties. Um, in a time when I think people are searching for kindness, um, it's refreshing to know, because I know you, that you're a very kind person um, and that I find it a rare combination to know someone who's empathetic and also highly accomplished. So I'm trying to not trying to embarrass you, but um, I do find, I, I wonder, um, and, and I mean this genuinely, uh, have you always been the way that you are or did, or because often very motivated people who accomplish as much as you have don't tend to be people who are warm and super empathetic and that, that might be an overgeneralization, but what, what would you say motivates you and have you always been so nice? Well, I mean, I think part of it was, you know, again, you try to always remember where you came from and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I came here 25 years ago and people were exceedingly kind to me. I mean, mm -hmm. at every step of my career, I've had people who have been kind, who have been generous, who have uh, mentored me, um, you know, Ralph Rubin uh, at Johns Hopkins, but even before that, um, at UT Southwestern, um, you know, I've had Dr. Kumar, Dr. Vinay Kumar, who was one of the editors of Robin's Pathology. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he 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 was he was outstanding in terms of uh, you know um, how uh, you know in terms of his mentorship and and, and so um, you know I mean you 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 remember those those occasions and um, you know you try to sort of pay it forward in terms of what mm -hmm. they have done for you can you do for someone else and so I, I really I consider myself very fortunate. I don't think that I got here on my own, but I am here because of uh, the fact that I was able to stand on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's something that we should never forget. What brought you here? Who brought you here? And and if you remember that, then you try as much as possible to pay that back in kind to others who are coming after you. That's a really good that's a really good way of looking at it. Thank you. Um, so usually at the end of the show, I have a final diagnosis just because I'm a <clears throat> super nerd and also a pathologist. So, um, <laughs> this is the CPC. This is the part of the CPC where we come and we tell the diagnosis, right? Mm, yes. So I'll go first and then you can go okay. if you would like to. Um, I think that the COVID situation is affecting all areas of medicine, both due to resource allocation issues and shifting of priorities of our clinical colleagues. I think it will be interesting as elective procedures start to pick up again to note how the medical system, quote unquote, catches up for all of the rescheduled care, but also to see how patients seek out that care in a time of increased worry about becoming sick while interacting with the healthcare system. In short, I think we'll be feeling the effects of this pandemic for a long time to come. So would you like to offer a final diagnosis? I, I would say that I agree completely with you. I think um, that this uh, pandemic is going to change the way we do medicine, the way we deliver care. Um, it's going to change the way that we interact um, as fellow human beings. 
I hope mm-hmm. that at the end of it, we are all, uh, you know, kinder to each other and more understanding, um, especially because I, I feel like we are going to be going through a rough period as a society, as 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 a world in general. But even mm-hmm. if you consider the United States, we're going to be going through a pretty rough period. And I think it's important for us to stick together and, and, and really uh, be kinder to each other in, in this time. Um, but there's no question that this pandemic is going to change uh, in the context of healthcare, how physicians and, and, and patients interact with each other as well as with each other. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been Deeper Levels. Thank you, everyone. Stay safe out there. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.